Good morning. <laughs> my name is uh, Scott Breslin. My wife, Katarina, is, is right here. And uh, actually, our number three child, Jonathan, is uh, also visiting here today. And, uh, well, I'd, like to, I'd also like to get in line and thank uh, Chantilly. Uh, Chantilly has been, we've been partnering with Chantilly for 35 years. That's amazing. 22 of those years in Turkey, and then the last 13 of those years uh, in Sweden. And today I have the privilege to carry on in this theme of living as light and speaking and focusing on missions. And one of the things that I'm going to try to do today is to broaden our scope of what we understand when you hear the word mission. Matthew, you know, I know that you've all been going through uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount. When I, uh, I use the Sermon on the Mount on, with people that I disciple, we, we memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we, we go through it, and we, we try to, to, uh, uh, to see how it applies to every aspect of our life. And so it, it fits beautifully with Matthew 5, uh, 14 through 16 as being the theme verses of living as lights. And today, this little part about broadening your, maybe broadening your understanding of what it means uh, to be on mission is that, that uh, cute little phrase in there, good works, where it says, starting in verse 16, in the same way, that is, in the same way as you don't put a lamp and then put a bushel basket over it, how, how that is crazy and illogical. In the same way, you, you don't have a, a light and, and as soon as you light it, hide it, but you, but you shine it, you, you put it in a, a place where it can spread light in the whole room. In that same way, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Isn't it interesting that it's by them seeing your, your good deeds? I think that's extremely significant, and that's actually what I want to focus quite a bit, uh, because we, we constantly talk about, you know, it's not by works that we're saved. Salvation is not by works. Yet, as we're going to look at in a few minutes, we have been created to do good works. Uh, myself, um, I, I grew up in, uh, in Annandale, um, and in my family, whenever we use the, the term good works, we put those two words together. In Greek, I, as I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I, I can do research, <laughs> and, and those words is kalos ergon. But in English, when we put kalos ergon, it comes out to be good works, but for me, it makes me think of rescuing a cat out of a tree or, or shoveling my neighbor's uh, sidewalk, you know, like something kind of extraordinary. But I'm going to propose to you that to the, to the listeners of Jesus and to the readers of the New Testament, that that's not the intended meaning, that the meaning is much broader. It means good has to do with, you know, good 
high quality, honorable, uh, and work, you know, it has to do with, you know, anything you create, anything you put your hands to, uh, music, art, bricklaying, that is good works. And so it's, it's like, let, let them see the good things you're about doing and it will glorify the father and good works. This also includes, you know, your, your nine to five job, your, your, your normal work, that these are part of what it means when it says good works and your good works are to be high quality. They're to, they're to give some benefit to yourself and to your society. And in a sense, that's what helps make them good. And this is in part what makes us lights. You know, we always say, you know, Jesus is the light of the world and he is. But here in Matthew 5, 14, it says, you and me are the lights of the world. And what I want to propose to you is that there are, there are three fundamental commands or mandates that are interdependent on each other. And so that when we talk about missions, it's, it's, it's incomplete to talk about just Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which is what we typically talk about, about missions, you know, go, therefore go, go and make disciples of all nations. So I'm going to kind of reel it in a little bit and talk about this, these other two aspects, but particularly on the, on the do good works, because in my sphere, uh, we don't talk about that enough. And, uh, in my sphere, you know, I, I'll go up to a colleague and, and I'll say, Hey, how's the ministry going? And, and what I mean by that was he understands by that is, you know, spiritual teaching, evangelism, that kind of thing. But I, I want to propose to you that that is a unuseful phrase and a, an incomplete definition of ministry, which literally means what service, right? And I want to propose to you that, that ministry includes your occupation. It includes your work, whether your work is paid work or whether it's voluntary work, whether it's, it's happening on a military base or, or happening in your home, that we were created to do good work. We're created to work. And actually work is an important aspect of our worship, but work in itself doesn't make it sacred. It's our attitude towards the work that makes it sacred or not, that makes it worship or not. And let me, let's go back to, and, and I, you know, I don't have a particular straight text, uh, to, to share, but I'm going to use a little thread and I know you know the scriptures and just verify it, whether it's true or not. But we go back to what is sometimes called the, the, the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And that's in, in Genesis one. And it's the, um, it's the first time that uh, Yahweh is giving instructions to humans. You know, he created man. It says he created man in his image. And then he says to them, he gives them these commands. He says, be fruitful, increase, 
fill the earth, subdue it. And then he, you know, he puts Adam in the garden and he says, work it, take care of it, till it. And all of this is before the fall. You see, God gave man, he made man in his image and gave him, the first thing he does is give him work to do. Because work is in part how we're made in the image of God. Just as he created for six days, he wants us to create and build and work. And when Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the picture, the picture it didn't take away that, that mandate uh, to work. It made work a little bit harder and sometimes less enjoyable. But I, I suggest to you that, uh, that this verse, this uh, creation mandate is, is repeated in part in Ephesians 2.10. And I love it that in the youth group, you have both in the, in the youth hall uh, meeting room, you have these two verses that are separated. Ephesians 2.8.9, you know, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of work. So we're, we're not talking about work having anything to do with your salvation. But then it goes on to say, you have been created in Christ to do good works. Isn't that interesting? You're not saved by the good works, yet you are created to do good works. I, I, that's very curious to me. It, it reminds me of that creation mandate. And it's as if, here in, in Ephesians, that this uh, mandate is, is being, we're being reminded that this mandate is still valid. Do good work. Yes, rescue the cat out of the tree. But when you, when you get in your car and go to work, or whether you, you stay at home and take the kids to school, or whatever your work is, do it to the glory of God. Whatever, as Colossians 3.23 says, whatever your hands find to do, do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord rather than unto man. Does that make sense? See, it's, it's not actually what you do, whether you're preaching, whether you're laying brick, whether you're driving a truck, whether you're, you're, you're welding uh, metal together, whether you're, computer, you're programming a computer or, or defending our country. Do it well. Do it for your sake, for society's sake, and for God's sake. Do it unto God. You see, it's our attitude which can transform our work into worship. It really has very little to do with the work that we're, we're doing ourselves. Let me, and let me, let me just suggest too that, that this, is a, this is a key to missions. Because people, they see your good work and it glorifies God who is in heaven. This is missions. You are on mission in your workplace in your family, in your neighborhood. It is not a greater aspiration to become a missionary. 
As a matter of fact, I'm going to propose to you that the, the, one of the biggest strategic needs of today is to not to give up your job and become a missionary, but to keep your job and become missional. Because as the, the water on the lake rises, all the boats on the lake rise with it. And in today's urbanized, globalized society, the chances are that if you have a, a working team of 10 people, that half of them are not Native Americans. Maybe even more so in, in the Washington, D.C., where the, this, this East Coast, in the city, the small city that we live in, Sweden, it's only around, I think, 120,000 People, Katerina will correct me, <laughs> but 20% are foreign born. You know, the, 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 the paradigm has switched. We're living in a multicultural environment and people from everywhere are working with people from everywhere. A great opportunity. Let me just very quickly, um, just go a little bit more. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to spend too much time on this good work part, <laughs> but, but here are four people and I, I should have put on here at least one more, but these are the names that came to mind. But in politics, you know, you, you know who this guy is? You recognize him? It's not George Washington. It's William Wilberforce, a Brit who was, who was the key figure, which helps change the legislation about slavery and make it illegal. He was under tremendous pressure. He was a God-fearing man, and, it, and his fear of God drove him against all odds to push for this in the United Kingdom. This other guy, no one has ever heard of him. Um, Joseph Lancaster, he's the one who pioneered public education. In his day, the government uh, didn't think educating children was part of its responsibility. They thought, well, that was part of the church's responsibility or part of the parents' responsibility. And so what basically happened, uh, unless you were upper class, uh, you got no education. And the, the poor class, the working class, uh, their kids were illiterate. And he was an instrument. He was a dedicated Quaker. And he led a movement which uh, we can look back to and was the, a, a seed for public education and changing the mindset that the government can get involved in education and that, well, that everyone can be educated. This next guy, interesting, business. Anyone from Philadelphia? His name is Johnny Wanamaker. He was, uh, his son, you might have heard of the Wanermaker Trophy, the Pro Golf. His son ended up founding Pro Golf. That's just a side note. <laughs> but John Wanamaker uh, was, um, was under a lot of pressure by his parents to become a minister. And after wrestling, he finally put down his, his fist, so to speak, and said, you know, no, I believe God wants me to be a businessman. And in that day, to tell your God-fearing parents that you're going to be a businessman is like maybe today saying, Mom, I want to be a, a bartender. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing immoral about being a bartender, but, but geez, it just it carries no status. And, and how can I tell my friends that you're 
you, your aspiration is to become a bartender. Well, he wanted to become a merchant. And he perhaps became the greatest merchant of his era. You know what he's famous for? Well, you never heard of him, so he's probably not famous. But he's the guy who we give credit to inventing the price tag. The price tag. Who would ever think that the price tag needed to be invented? But in 1860, nobody used price tags. You went into a store and you looked the person over and you tried to, if you were the salesman, and you looked them over and you tried to figure out what they're worth, and then you'd, you'd give a price. And you would barter. It was a barter economy. And that was generally true over all product ranges from what I read. Of course, I wasn't there. But by the, the idea of the price tag came to him, and, and we don't know like if he was the, the first in the whole world, but he was the one who normalized it. And he said, he thought like this. He thought, if all people are equal unto God, they should be equal unto price. And that's why he put price tags. He, he started the 30-day 30, uh, return guarantee. That he did start. He was one of the first people in America to, have, to do paid vacations. He, many different things that he was an innovator, innovator in. I also love it that he was instrumental in, in founding a, a church in Philadelphia of 3,000 people with a Sunday school of 800. You remember when uh, there used to be the YMCA and the Sunday school movement? Well, I mean, he, this guy had incredible gifts and he used those gifts unto the Lord. From what I've read, there were 800 people, 800 kids in the Sunday school. And he knew, and he was kind of the superintendent besides running this giant department store, which also he's given uh, credit with starting the department store movement, which is bringing all your wares into one, under one house. But he knew the name of all 800 kids in the Sunday school. Is that amazing? And he was just kind of the superintendent. Uh, just to say that these are examples of people who changed the world. I should have George Washington Carver under here, under scientist, a, a man of deep conviction and, and strength who, who through his scientific discoveries and his work with the, with the peanuts helped the South from not starving and creating alternative crops and, and many other, other things driven strongly by his faith and the understanding in his mind that there are secrets in different plants and, and it was up to man to help to bring out these secrets for use. And then finally, Ella Wheeler. None of us have heard of her, but she's the woman who is given credit for being the start of the child protection movement. She was a social worker in New York and she in her rounds of meeting people, she came across this, this young girl who was, I, I, if I get it right, she, if I remember right, she was nine years old, but she had the appearance of a four-year-old because she was so hungry. She was barefoot and, and cold. And, and uh, Mrs. Wheeler tried to, tried to rescue this girl from her step-parents. But there, were, there was no law which protected a, a child against malicious parents or step-parents. There were, at the time, the, um, 
the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty of Animals had just passed law just a few years earlier that protected a donkey or a horse and, and animals from cruelty by their owner. And it gave the, the police the right to take an animal out if the animal was being mistreated. But there was more protection for a donkey than there was protection for a child at that time. And Ella Wheeler helped lead the change in law until they finally rescued this girl and they, they had to use law that was written for the protection of animals in order to get her free. And just to say that for all of us, you know, we, there, there are still many, many, many problems out there yet to be solved. Some big ones and some small ones, some that, that no one will ever see. But you see, I believe that this is what God meant when he said, do good works. Some of them will affect the globe. Some of them will just affect you. But God sees it and he wants you to do it unto him. And if you get paid well for it, all the better. Don't be ashamed of getting well paid. But a lot of the work we do, we don't get paid for at all. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't see it. And that doesn't mean that it's not important. Well, back. Well, maybe that's enough right now <laughs> to talk about the good works. Because we have these other commands or mandate. We have what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, therefore, since all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. And we're going to talk about how far behind we are in that, actually. But then we have, so the way I look at it, I see the, the in Genesis 1 is, is like a bookmark. Uh, the first command to people is to go and do good, well, do good works. And then over here, you have another bookmark at the other end, which is to make disciples of all nations. And then you have the great commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your, your what as yourself? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we see from John 4.20 and other places that you can't say, I love God and hate your neighbor. It is not true. If you hate your neighbor, you do not love God. Somehow there's a, a link to how we treat each other to how we understand and worship God. And that's why Jesus insists that we reconcile with those we wrong and forgive those that wrong us. Because the, the relationship with each other is of high priority to God our Father. And so if we do all these good works, but don't love God or people, it accounts for little. And if we do discipleship, 
but don't do good works. It, it's, like, it's like trying to make cement and only having three, only having two of the three ingredients you need. You know, you need the binder, which is the, the powdery cement. And then you need the aggregate, which is like the sand or the, or the rock. And then you need water, which acts as a catalyst. And when you mix them all up and then wait, you get rock. So you get concrete. But it doesn't work if you leave any of those three ingredients out. And I, I know. <laughs> I have a very crumbly project. I didn't put enough binder in or enough gravel. I'm still not sure. But it's supposed to be concrete and I can carve it out with my thumb. But so, I propose to you that this is missions. Three together, side by side. Take any of them out, and actually it becomes ugly. You got to do good works, but you also have to make disciples. And you have to do them all out of love towards God and love toward your fellow human. And this is the mandate. Good news, bad news. God is doing stuff all around the world. We're seeing more Muslim background people come to Jesus than any other time in history. They are coming in droves. You only stuff you hear about Iran is bad news, but Iranians are coming to Jesus in groves. And it's true with many Muslim background people. It's also true with Hindu background people. God is moving in India. He's moving in Indonesia, the, the, the largest Muslim country in the world, with perhaps more people groups than you can count on your hands and toes and hair. I mean, there's all kinds of people groups there, and God is moving. But there's also bad news. The bad news is that there's still perhaps 3.3 billion people who lie outside the reach of Christians because of culture or language or attitudes. And in other words, in order for those people to have an opportunity to, to hear and understand the gospel, somebody has to go and meet with them. God gives dreams. I've met a lot of Muslim people who have had dreams. But dreams don't lead people to Christ. They just make people open. And when they, they may not have been interested in, in, in spiritual things much at all, they have this dream, and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're ripe to, to hear the gospel. I've interviewed dozens of people who have claimed to have supernatural dreams revolving around Jesus. And in none of them was the gospel shared within the dream. I believe God has reserved that for you and me. He's re reserved that for his people. The other problem, well, 95% of these 3.3 billion live in some place which we, we call the 1040 window. Have you heard that before? That expression is it's that area that you see on the, on the map here. Make matters 
worse, that number of unreached is growing by between 60 and 90,000 a day. And what I'm, I'm here to say is that the way we're doing missions today, we'll, we'll, there's no scenario, it's hard to imagine, let me say that, it's hard to imagine a scenario where people will have the opportunity to hear unless we kind of change the paradigm. So we want to rejoice in all the things that God's doing. I love hearing about Bob, what, how Bob's work is going in Ethiopia and, the, and how the gospel is showing up there. And I love hearing about how Wycliffe Bible translators are breaking new language groups and, and lots of cool things are happening. And so we rejoice in that. But we need to take a, a sober look at the empty part of the glass. And here, at least in part, is what I think is part of the fix. We have to get, it's going to take the whole church to reach the whole world. We can't think that we're, that just by, by sending, you know, missionaries here and there, we still need to send missionaries. <laughs> we still need to do that. But it's, it's not enough. We need to ramp up. We need to get everybody involved. So the paradigm that I grew up with and, and when Katerina and I went overseas, the paradigm was give up your job and become a missionary. Sometimes, I hate to say it, it was said, do something significant with your life and become a missionary. Oh, have any of you heard that message? That's heresy. If you're not doing something significant with your life, being a missionary won't make it significant. But so in much of our, our, of our mission, missionary culture, we encourage people, you know, okay, if you were a teacher, stop being a teacher. If you were an engineer, leave that and uh, God will take care of you. Go to the ends of the earth. And you, you show up in this new culture and you have nothing in your hand. And you, and you know, they're looking at you. Well, what are you doing here? Isn't it nicer in America? You know, why do you want to live among, you know, in this poverty? And the reason, you know, the least reach or least reach is it's not like, like they're sitting there waiting to hear the gospel. They don't know that they need to hear it. And I don't say most, probably most have a cultural disposition that's against hearing the gospel. And they've, and why not? Because they've never met a believer. You see that gap that we jump over? What is that gap? Is that gap the Atlantic Ocean? Well, I propose to you that that gap is relational proximity. So I can even, I can even jump across that gap, but if I have no, if the culture doesn't make any space for me, I'm kind of standing on the outside looking in. And so it's not just getting, getting there geographically and, and being in the same square footage. You, we have to have relational proximity. 
And that's, that's like we have to be able to relate to each other. And of course, quite often, learning a new language is part of that process. But you see in this picture, keep your job and become missional. The guy has a hammer in his hand. And what do the people have in their hand that are waiting for him? Tools, right? So now you jump in that place and you, you're useful. You can join with them. You can be part of their work group. And what's, what's so interesting is that if, if you take your job overseas, you have instant community with your, in your workplace. Isn't that cool? Well, if you, if you go as a missionary to a place where there are no churches, which is qu quite frequent in the 1040 window, um, you have, to, you have to invent a reason for being there. So you become an English teacher or you become, in other words, there, there, aren't, there aren't usually roles for, for pastors and missionaries in these host cultures. You have to come with something else. But you're not, you see, when I went to Turkey, we were kind of faking it because we thought, okay, if you, you know, what was told to us, if you can't get through the door, you go through the window, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. But if you're in the house and you see somebody coming through the window, what do you do? You know, you don't trust the guy coming in through the window, do you? And so what I want to propose to you is that when you bring your work, you're not only bringing your good work which it becomes visible to the people around you. But you, you bring access into a community, a natural access into a community. You become a belonger. And even though you're an American and everybody else is something else, it's not a problem because that's how the work is. And increasingly, work everywhere are, are full of people with multinationals. Raise your hand if you have someone who wasn't born in America working near or around you. Anybody? The come, people come from all over the world. Billy Graham said, I believe one of the greatest moves of God in the next, the next move of God, great move of God is going to be through believers in the workplace. And I amen that. Let me close. I hate taking scripture out of context, and I'm going to do it a little bit here in Exodus 4. Uh, but me saying that um, warns you. So imagine Moses in, Moses in uh, Exodus 3. That Exodus 3 is about Moses encountering this burning bush. It caught his attention. Why is this bush burning but not being consumed? He approaches it, and God starts to speak to him and giving him instructions about how God wants to use Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and how God is, is reclaiming them. He's seen their pain. He's seen their sorrow, and now he's going to bring in Moses to help lead them out. Now, if Moses was an American, 
he, he, Moses would have said, hey, yes, sir, I'm your best choice. Thank you. Great confidence, you know, stepping into something. But Moses says, you know, it's like, no, Lord, you, you must not really mean me. Moses had zero confidence that he could do what God was telling him to do. And he said, the people won't listen to me if I tell them, you know, I met with you. I mean, how, you know, how are they going to know? Well, Moses said, uh, God says to Moses, he says, what do you have in your hand? And he had a staff because for the last decade or more, he'd been working as a shepherd. And he says, throw your staff, throw it down on the ground. And I think this staff is symbolic of whatever you have, whatever you're comfortable with. A staff is to a shepherd what a hammer is to a carpenter or what a laptop is to a programmer. And he says, he says, he says lay it down and watch. And God turns the, the staff into a snake. Moses is scared. God tells him to pick it up back into a staff. And God was, was trying to help build Moses' confidence. But, God, but Moses used that staff throughout his entire ministry in leading Egypt out of Israel. And I want to propose to you that there's a high chance that our Lord wants to use what you have in your hand. Of course, you need to surrender it to him. But he wants to take it and remake it and give you confidence to go out and make disciples of all nations while you are doing good works, doing good work. And while you're loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and your neighbor or other people as yourself. And it starts here, where you are at. It doesn't start when you get overseas. It starts where you're working now. And allow God to give you confidence. And if anyone would like help and coaching in getting that done, just email me. I am happy. This is what I'm giving my life to. <laughs> to try to change the paradigm from give up your job and become a missionary. We still need that. But I think one of the most strategic things that I can invest in now is, is helping mobilize the church and people saying, keep your job and become missional. Keep your job and make disciples. And that is a little bit of a transition and we, we need coaching. And there, there are actually lots of people in this congregation who are already good at that. And I know uh, Chantilly also has a, has a history of sending people out with their job. So let's keep up that good work. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we want to, um, to be your light on earth. And we ask you to, to work deeply in us that you would help us to do good works, to, to love you and people, and to, and to go and to engage with, uh, with the nations. Uh, that, that you would be glorified, uh, that you would uh, return, and that we would just be faithful in uh, 
accomplishing uh, the work that you have set out for us. In Jesus' name, amen.